We are so thankful this morning, our Father, that the book that we hold in our hand is not the ramblings of any man. It is the precise, accurate, holy Word of God that is powerful to change us. Where else will we go for help? What else will minister to us? What else will transform us? What else, what else can give us life in Christ but this book? And so, Father, as we come to this book, might we come in this hour with submission and with joy and with anticipation for what you might do in us. Would you change us? Would you change me? by what we are about to hear. We pray in the name of Christ and for His glory. Amen. John Mudnian may be one of the most well-known believers and followers of Jesus Christ, a man who wrote numerous books, including the well-read and still-read Pilgrim's Progress. He was a bold pastor in a difficult time in the church. In fact, he was imprisoned for a dozen years for preaching the clarity of the gospel and refusing to give in to the Church of England. Yet he did not always exude confidence and fearlessness. Prior to his salvation, he said of himself, a whole flood of blasphemies both against God, Christ, and the Scriptures were poured upon my spirit to my great confusion and astonishment. My heart was at times exceedingly hard. If I would have been given a thousand pounds for a tear, I could not shed one. Oh, the desperateness of man's heart. I feared that this wicked sin of mine might be that sin unpardonable. Oh, no one knows the terrors of those days but myself. Call it discouragement or despondency or despair or depression. Most people will experience it in some ways at some point in their lives and for some it will be even a debilitating experience. Charles Spurgeon noted, the strong are not always vigorous, the wise not always ready, the brave not always courageous, and the joyous not always happy. There may be here and there men of iron to whom wear and tear work no perceptible detriment, but surely the rust frets even these. And as for ordinary men, the Lord knows and makes them to know that they are but dust. Discouragement hasn't disappeared in our modern age either. There are still people who despair. There are still those who suffer with despondency and discouragement. As in his helpful biography, The Roots of Endurance, John Piper writes this, One of the pervasive marks of our times is emotional fragility. It hangs in the air we breathe. We are easily hurt, we pout and mope easily, we blame easily, we break easily, our marriages break easily, our faith breaks easily, our happiness breaks easily, our commitment to the church breaks easily, we are easily disheartened, and it seems we have little capacity for surviving and thriving in the face of criticism and opposition. In a very real way, we live in an age of discouragement, with people despairing. 
Where does this discouragement come from? And is there any hope for the discouraged believer? An unnamed psalmist has opened to us the nature of his heart and soul to the discouragement in his own life that not only gives us spiritual encouragement, but also provides a spiritual direction on the way we should go. Psalm 42 is unnamed. We don't know who the author was. And because we don't know the author, we don't know the exact circumstances under which he wrote. But we we do know that it was for the sons of Korah. It is, it is given to the sons of Korah so that they would lead in temple worship. The sons of Korah were, the, were Levites who, who um, typically led in, in choral singing worship in the community of believers as they gathered in the temple, either for feasts or for regular weekly worship. And this says it is a maskeel for the sons of Korah, that is, um, it is it is something that is to give wisdom. It is something to give direction. It is something to give prudence. So it is a song that is to give wisdom and instruction. His counsel is about living wisely when life is unfair and hard. As I noted, we don't know who the author himself is, At minimum, we know that he is at least afflicted with some kind of illness. He is afflicted with something that is keeping him away from worship. It could be that he's living somewhere in Israel and just can't get to Jerusalem for worship. From from verse 6, from the middle of the psalm, it appears that he might be living in the northern portion of the land of Israel, in Dan, near Mount Hermon, which is in the far north, and It could be that the circumstances have just left him unable to get down to Jerusalem for worship, either for the feasts or for regular worship. Or it could be, and this is what my leaning is, it could be that he has been taken captive either by Assyria or Babylon and taken out of Israel and taken to that foreign nation. And he is alone in that nation. And there are things in the text that point us to that. And I think that is exactly what's going on. He's alone. He's being mocked and he's being persecuted for his faith. And the the barrage of persecution has left him despondent and discouraged. And we are going to hear two long laments with with numbers of features to those laments for, for his discouragement, the things that are driving him to discouragement. And then we're going to hear an overwhelming provision for his hopelessness. And what we're going to find in this song is that even in the pressures of life, God is God and will save his people. No matter what the pressures, no matter what the burdens, no matter what the strains, no matter what the weightiness is, God is God and he will save his people. The psalmist starts in verse 1 with the laments of hopelessness. These are things that drive him and compel him to feel hopeless. And he begins in the first two verses with what I think is, is the pinnacle of his lament. This is, this is the one thing that for all the other things that have happened to him, for all his other trials, for all his other burdens, this is, this is the one that stands above the others. It is the lament. God is absent. God is absent. He is, he is longing for fellowship with God. And notice what he says in verse 1, As the deer pants for the water brooks, 
Even as, even as a, as a deer is, is looking for water, not, not a deer who's in, in some kind of desert experience, not a deer who's gone through some kind of drought, but just a deer day by day that, that needs water and goes down to the brooks and, and feeds himself there and drinks and takes in nourishment that replenishes him in the same way that that deer goes daily for that water. He says, soul, my soul pants for you, O God. My, my soul has a similar inward craving that that deer has an external craving of water for. The deer needs water more than anything else. And the psalmist needs God more than anything else. But notice that he, he here directs himself to speak to God himself. So my soul pants for you. I have a longing for you, a yearning for you, a desire for you. And, and there is an intimation there. I want you. Where are you? Why, why have you left me? Why, why am I alone away from you? The psalmist turns from this, directing his attention to God in verse 1 to a more broad context of all the worshipers in verse 2. My soul thirsts for God. Now, now he's not speaking to God himself, but he's speaking to the other worshipers, the other singers of this song. And he notes that, that he yearns for God. He has this passionate desire for God, but not just God, but notice he says for the living God. That is, he recognizes that the life can only be had in God. God is the source of his life. As, as one commentator has said, having life God can impart life. So understanding that God is the source of life, he, he knows that if he's going to have life, if he's going to live, he must go to God. There, there is another, no other source for life but God alone. He yearns for the opportunity to worship God and craves the fellowship that comes from God. But it's an experience that it's eluding him. Notice the last part of verse 2. When shall I come? When shall I, when shall I appear before God? When, when can I come to worship and be with God and be in His presence and engage in corporate worship that will stimulate me to walk after God? But it's not just, it's not just that He wants corporate worship. He wants God. Remember, as, as a, as a, a worshiper in the Old Testament, when they went to corporate worship, they were going to Jerusalem, they were going to the tabernacle, and they were going to the Holy of Holies where the very presence of God dwelt. And so to go to worship was to go to, in some sense, the residence of God. And when he says, and we'll see this in, in a few moments, when he says, I can't go to worship it's not just the worship that he's missing, it's God that he's missing. I, I'm missing the opportunity to, to see you and to experience your fellowship and, and to delight in you. I need you. Steve Lawson has said, all the hope, trust, and confidence of the psalmist was in the living God. 
not the lifeless deities of pagan idolatry. His thirst was for the true God who was self-sufficient, independent, autonomous, and willing to come to the aid of His people. And He can't find Him. He can't get to Him. He's excluded from fellowship with Him. The psalmist is alone in this world. We're going to see this in just a moment, but further that that he's not only alone separated from other people, but he's alone separated from God. Many people even today have that sense of loneliness, says R.C. Sproul. Man lives in an environment where many human beings experience a profound sense of the absence of God. And friends, if you are a believer, that will make you miserable. Where is God? I need Him. So Jonathan Edwards says, Offer a saint what you will, but if you deny Him God, He will esteem Himself miserable. God is the center of His desires, and as long as you keep His soul from its proper center, it will not be at rest. And yet this is exactly what the psalmist thought he had. This is exactly what the psalmist believed himself to be in. God is gone. I am absent from God and God is absent from me and He is despairing. And friend, when you and I walk through seasons of of spiritual dryness and loneliness, we're going to be tempted to have the same kind of despair as this psalmist. Where are you, God? This is the pinnacle of the psalmist's lament. But there is further lament. It's given in verse 3. I am suffering. The depth of his sorrow is evident when he says at the beginning of verse 3, My tears have been my food day and night. He is sustained, if you will, only by his tears. The only sustenance he has, the only thing he has to feed on, the only thing he has to eat are his tears. All he has to eat is his grief. He is burdened and weighed down and suffering, overwhelmed with the tears of his grief. And the tears obviously are, are flowing from his perception of the absence of God. But his grief is also compounded because of the suffering that he endures from others. Notice verse 3, the end. While they say to me all day long, day after day, all day long, throughout the day, he hears one refrain from those who are around him. It is the mock. Where is your God? Where where is God answering your problems? Where is God to help you? Where is God to guide you? Not only is he alone without God, but he is surrounded by people who reject and mock God. And I think it's this verse that, that makes it clear that he's, he's moved out of Israel. For surely if he had been in Israel, even if he was in the northern part, most parts of Israel, there would have been some around him to encourage him. But here, no one encourages him. There is no hope. There, there is no word of encouragement. There is no word to embolden him. There's only the detracting, taunting, mocking words. Oh, really? You believe in God? Where's God? Remember, you're not in Israel anymore. You're in Assyria. How did you get to Assyria? Why didn't God do anything to you to bring you out of Assyria? Why didn't God do anything to bring you out of Babylon? You're alone and your God will not help you. 
This is the kind of taunting that believers in God have always received. Psalm 59, verse 7, Behold, they belch forth with their mouth, swords are in their lips, for they say, Who hears? Who's going to hear your complaint when I persecute you? Psalm 71, 11, They say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is no one to deliver. Who who will deliver him? He's, He's free for the taking. God won't protect him. Psalm 73, 11, how, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Psalm 94, verse 7, they have said, the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob pay, pay heed. The Lord doesn't see and the Lord doesn't care. And this is the same kind of accusation that our Lord Himself received. Matthew chapter 27 In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. If he trusts, he trusts in God, let God rescue him if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. This is the kind of taunting that is at the root of every rejection of God. And undoubtedly the mockers are tempting him to think, I'm separated from God, I'm alone. Are are they right? Is it possible that God doesn't hear? Is it possible? Is it possible that God doesn't care? Worst of all, is it possible that God doesn't even exist? This is his loneliness in his taunting. Just an aside, before you get wrapped up in the taunting he's receiving, we do well to remember that this is the same kind of question that God asks of the nations. Deuteronomy 32, and God will say, verse 37, where are their gods, the rock in which they sought refuge? Who's going to protect them now if I am their enemy? Isaiah 36, 19, where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaram? When they have deli- and when have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Jeremiah chapter 2. But where are your gods which you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in the time of trouble. Well, friends, we, we do well to hear that while the nations say, where is their God? God answers Psalm 115. Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. The mocking of the nations doesn't mean that God does not exist. The the mocking and the taunting and the ridicule doesn't mean that God has ceased to exist. Don't let the doubting questions that arise in suffering distract you from the truth of God's eternal presence and God's eternal help. This was the lament of the psalmist, though. He found himself dissuaded. He found himself moved away from God. He found himself starting to doubt because of his suffering. There's another lament in verse 4. I have lost worship and ministry. As he is taunted by his enemies, he's also taunted by his own memories. Verse 4, these things I remember and pour out my soul within me. I, I remember things from the past and, and it grieves my soul and my soul overflows into these laments. As I, as I think back to the past and what life used to be like when I was back in Israel, for I used to, he says in the middle of verse 4, I used to go along with the throng. I, I used to go with the people of Israel to worship. And I think what he's talking about here is, 
is the festivals and the feasts, three annual feasts that the Israelites would gather in Jerusalem to go to, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of First Fruits, and the Feast of Tabernacle. And they would, they would gather and all come from all over the nation, from different tribes and different cities. And as they come, they would sing the songs of ascent as they're making their way up to Jerusalem, Psalms 121 to 134. They would sing those songs and, and stimulate themselves to worship and, and be gathered to Jerusalem and to remember God and His provision. And he says, I used to go along with the throng, notice the end of the verse, with a voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. That's what it was, and now that memory is mocking him because he, he can't go anymore. He's not in Israel. He's not in Jerusalem Just an aside, the psalmist is taking encouragement from corporate worship. He thinks to where his soul is now and how he's struggling. And he says, I need corporate worship. I I need voices of joy and thanksgiving. I I need a group of people around me reminding me of the truth of the character and the nature of God to drive me into a worship of Him. I can't do it right now, but I need others to help me. It has been my observation over the years that when when times get difficult, when life is hard, when life is heavy, And when we are prone to despair, often one of the first things to leave is corporate worship. On on one level, I understand that. It's it's just too hard. I I come to worship and and I see smiling faces and I hear happy songs and, and my heart isn't there and all I can do is cry. I've had people tell me, all I do is just cry the whole worship service long and it's just not worth it. Other times they'll say, well, I, I, I come and people know and they, they're well-meaning and they want to help me, but I just get tired of answering the same questions over and over and over. And I, I, just, I just can't go. Friend, when, when you are lost in the wilderness of despair, you need someone to open this book for you and point you to the God of the book. And, and you need someone to, to say, let us sing this song and orient your heart to this song. You need someone to pray for you when you can't give words to your prayer. Friend, the psalmist instinctively understood the one thing he needed was worship. And when we leave worship, when we pull ourselves out of worship, we are removing ourselves from the very thing that will most help us in the middle of our despair. I know it's hard. I get it. I've been there. I've walked that road. I've, I've, I've come into worship as a worshiper, empty, pleading with God to minister His Word to me. I, I get it. But what we need in that moment is not to walk away from worship. What we need in that moment is to walk into corporate worship. I used to go along with the throng, he said. I can't do it anymore. But notice what else he has lost. I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. Remember those songs of ascent they're singing? I think he's alluding to the fact that that he was one of the song leaders. He, He was one of the people saying, okay... 
Everybody remember Psalm 122? Psalm 122, let's start singing. And he's leading them. He's directing them. And he thinks back to the past and he, he not only thinks about the corporate worship he's lost, but now he's thinking about the ministry he's lost, about the opportunity to invest in people and, and to be with people, to disciple and train and point people to God. He had a place of ministry within the Jewish congregants and now in his isolation, that's gone too. Everything is gone. He's lost his worship. He's lost his ministry. He's lost his friends. And most of all, he's lost, he thinks, his God. He's overwhelmed by loneliness and it has provoked him to despair. Some of you are feeling the same way today. You're not in a foreign land, but you feel just as isolated as this, as this psalmist. You're overwhelmed by loneliness and emptiness. Your sense of loss is profound. You are like the faint-hearted in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, when Paul says, Brothers, we encourage you, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted. You're, you're someone who has a weak heart. You're, you're someone who is shriveled up and has a small soul that is having trouble trusting God in this moment. I don't know what the circumstances are, but, but I know life. And I, and I know that there are people here who are just really despairing today. It just seems so hopeless. God doesn't care. Where will you turn? I want you to see now out of the lament. I want you to see in verse 5, God's provision for hope. In God's battle plan for the mind, David Saxton writes, Many Christians are discouraged because they believe the depressing lies of their fallen hearts rather than actively engaging and controlling their minds with the uplifting truths of God and His great redemption. In verse 5, the psalmist controls his mind and guides us into truths that will sustain us when we are weary and weak. Are you weak? Are you just worn out? Here, my friend, is where you must turn. First of all, be patient as God works. Be patient as God works. Notice the middle of the verse. Hope in God. The word hope is a word that is often translated in the, in the Old Testament, wait. Wait in God or wait for God. It anticipates that God will work. But it not only anticipates God will work, but it's also a reminder to us, be patient as God will work. Wait for Him to work. His timing is right. God may not act immediately, but that does not mean that God will not act. God may not answer a prayer on the first day. God may not answer a prayer the first week. God may not answer a prayer the first decade. But that does not mean that God will not answer. That does not mean that God does not care. That does not mean that God has not heard. To hope in God is to be confident in God and His power and His ability and His resourcefulness. It is to say to God, You are my God and I trust You to do what you say you will do. I want you to notice as well that the way the psalmist says this, hope in God, it is a command. It, it, is, 
It is not something that happens to us, but, but hope is something that we exercise. Hope is something that we do. It is, it is an exercise and a demonstration of confidence in God as we rest on Him and as we wait for Him. One theologian has noted that, quote, the Christian hope is the hope which has seen everything and endured everything and still has not despaired because it believes in God. The Christian hope is not hope in the human spirit, in human goodness, in human endurance, in human achievement. The Christian hope is in the power of God. Oh friend, our hope is not in wishes or dreams or desires or longings. Our hope is in a confidence in God. Our, our hope is in a confidence in God's ability and God's authority and God's power. It is a confident expectation that God will act at the right time. Not a moment too soon and not a moment too late, but directly at the exact moment that it is needed, God will act. Be confident in that. This hope that we have in God, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, is a living hope. It continues for eternity and into eternity. Our hope is alive because the Savior who gives us hope is alive. Nothing can take our Savior's life, and if we are in Him, nothing can take our life. It is a living hope. Waiting is hard, isn't it? Isn't there even one amen on that? If you're like me, it, it's hard to be patient. Thursday morning, I, I left my, my house a little bit early and uh, earlier than usual. I thought, this is great. I'll get to the office early. And I had a whole list of things I needed to get done for the day. And I come up 144 and I turn the corner to get onto 377 and pff, come to a standstill. There are five cars wiped out, spun out on the bridge getting across the lake. And I'm in line. I can't back up and I can't go forward. And I was there for hours. Actually, I think it was about like seven to ten minutes, but it was hours. (laughs) Right? You know, a friend... Oh, friend, wait. It's not hopeless. God will act. And He will act at the right moment. There's another lesson we need to draw from this verse. And it is to continue in or to resume praise. Notice what he says, Hope in God, for I shall again Praise Him. I will. I will praise Him again. There is a day coming, the psalmist says, in which I will praise God either in corporate worship in Israel or in glory, but one place or the other, I will praise God. That day is not right now, but it's coming. And I will praise Him. And on that day when I am praising Him, as I look back to this day when I am despairing, I don't want to live with the regret that I didn't praise when I should have. He reminds himself that he should praise now, even when he cannot see the fullness of God's plan. 
Do you know 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18? We, we say it so flippantly, tritely. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Amen. Go and do likewise. Oh, friend, have you listened to those words? Rejoice always. It is always a good time to rejoice in God. There is no circumstance in which you will ever find yourself where you cannot find joy. Maybe not joy in the circumstance if there's sin involved, but there is joy to be had in the midst of that as you look to God. Rejoice always in everything give thanks. In every circumstance, give thanks. You think about the wide range of circumstances that can fit into that phrase, in everything. And Paul says, among all those things that you can think of, you give thanks. And pray without ceasing. Always be praying. Always be Always be interceding so that you can demonstrate your dependence on God, your confidence in God, your trust of God. Why? Because this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ Jesus, this is God's will for you. Rejoice, pray, give thanks. Always. Those words, rejoice, pray, give thanks, are right and true. Always. It's always a good time to praise God. The psalmist reminds himself of that. If you have stopped praising God because of some loss, my friend, it is time to start again. It is time to give thanks. It is time to reflect on His praiseworthy nature. There's another provision of hope that comes from God in this verse. It is that God is saving and He will save The psalmist is encouraged to praise God. Notice the last line in verse 5, for the help of His presence. The reason that he should hope in God is because of the nature of God who is helpful in every circumstance and for His eternal presence with His people. God is helping and God is here. You're not alone. It it may feel alone, but your, your feelings haven't determined reality. The reality is... God is helping. God is here. He he is in front of your face. That word presence actually is a Hebrew word that denotes face. He He is before your face. He is in your presence. What's particularly notable in that phrase is the word help. It literally means... God saves. It is is a word of salvation, used both temporally, but getting us out of our physical circumstances that are troubling, and spiritually getting us out of the spiritual debt that sin has placed us in. What's interesting is that that word is used 45 times in the Psalms. I won't read them all, but but, but I, I want you to have a sense of how the psalmists are continually drawing our attention to the fact that God saves. Psalm 3, verse 8, Salvation belongs to the Lord. 
Psalm 35, verse 9, And my soul shall rejoice in the Lord. It shall exult in His salvation. Psalm 62, 1, My soul waits in silence for God only. From Him is my salvation. Verse 2, He alone is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. Verse 6, He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. Psalm 68, 19, Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burdens, the God who is our salvation. Psalm 98, verse 2, The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of His nations. Verse 3, He has remembered His loving kindness and His faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Psalm 118.14, The Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. Verse 15, The sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. Psalm 118, verse 21, I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me, and you have become my salvation. 149, verse 4, For the Lord takes pleasure in His people. He will beautify the afflicted ones with salvation. Are you in God? And are you afflicted? He will cover you with salvation. He is our salvation. The psalmist can only hope in God because of the saving power of God. Oh, there's one more thing I want you to see about that word. That little word, the help of His presence, that word help, it's the word I think you know this. Some of you, some of you have taken Hebrew, but not many. But I think all of you will know this word. It is the word Yeshua. Anybody heard that word? Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. The angel says to Joseph, and you will name him Yeshua, Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus isn't in this verse, but this is a reminder that God is in this verse. And God is behind our salvation. And everything we need to be saved is to be found in God. God's not left you alone. God's not left you in a despairing position. God, God, God hasn't withheld Himself from you. It is the nature of God to save and be with you. And in the midst of your trial, you remember that God is a saving God. Now in a moment of temporary dark trial and trouble and difficulty, don't forget what God has revealed to you in the light. Don't forget in the dark what God has revealed in the light, and that is, He is a saving God. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and if you're being provoked to despair, remember, not just salvation, but remember the Christ that brought you to salvation. And then, understanding that if He has given me this great thing, won't he give me the little thing that I need as well? He's done the magnificent. Surely he can do the little. And friend, if you are not a Christian this morning, there is no hope for you out of your despair. There's no way out 
of the prison cell of despair in which you are in, accept that God saves. And the way he saves is through Jesus Christ. And if you want out of your despondency, what you must do is turn to Christ for the provision of life and he will free you from sin. He will free you from bondage to sin, free you from penalty, free you from the power of sin and point you in the right direction so that you can live hopefully and confidently in him. Oh friend, if you are not in Jesus Christ today, give up your sins and go to the only one who can save you. And in saving you, he will begin to pull you out of the despair and give you hope. There's one more thing that I want you to see. One more provision I want you to see for hopefulness in this verse. And you may have noticed I skipped the first two lines in this verse. And here we find the principle, speak to yourself. Notice in verse 1, the psalmist is speaking to God. In verses 2 through 4, the psalmist speaks to the other congregants. And now in verse 5, he speaks to himself. He addresses his mind and his heart and his soul. Why are you in despair? Oh, my soul. He talks to himself. He addresses himself. He corrects himself. And he further corrects himself. And he says, why have you become disturbed within me? He asks himself two questions. Why are you in despair? Why why are you melting away? Why are you dissolving away? Why, as you look at your circumstances, oh, soul, Why are you shrinking into emptiness? There's no good reason for your sense of loneliness, soul, he says to himself. Why have you become disturbed within me? Here he asks a penetrating question of himself. He's asking the self-examining examining question, why are you restless and why are you turbulent? And I see that word disturbed. I often think about my washing machine at home and the agitation, right, as it goes back and forth, just turning things back and forth so that the clothes go up and down and around and around and around and around. It's only as they tumble that they get clean. Man, I don't want to be in that washing machine. But that washing machine is inside me sometimes. Isn't it in you? Like at three in the morning you wake up and your stomach is just knotted. And you're disturbed within you. And the psalmist examines himself. What's wrong with you? Have you forgotten? Have you forgotten the hope of God? Have you forgotten the praise of God? Have you forgotten the salvation of God? We don't have time to read it, but I encourage you to read the long quote on the side of your outline by Martin Lloyd-Jones. That's taken from his book, Spiritual Depression. It's, it's from the first chapter in the book. The book's about $20. It is worth the price of the book for these three paragraphs alone. And he takes Psalm 42 and the psalmist lament and this verse and he asks the question, have you ever noticed that most of our trouble comes from the fact that we listen to ourselves instead of speak to ourselves? We, we listen to that inward voice 
that entices us to despair of verses 1 to 4 and we forget the hopefulness of God in verse 5. Oh, friend, if you are in Jesus Christ, speak the truth of God to yourself and meditate on these attributes, His, His presence, His hopefulness, and His salvation. Meditate on His praiseworthiness and you will find your heart boldened and equipped and strengthened when you are weak. I mentioned earlier that there's two cycles of lament and answer in this song. And as you're looking at the clock, you may be saying, okay, it's 1218 He's got 10 minutes and he's halfway through his sermon. Well, I I have a secret. And that is, the second lament is really just a reiteration of the first things he said. There's there's some amplification, some difference, but but it's a lot of the same things. I want you to just see that very quickly and then we'll come to the end and wrap it up. There are more laments of hopelessness. Finish the sentence for me. Absence makes the heart grow... Wrong. <laughs> Who's right? Um, I'm leaving tomorrow morning to go to the Shepherds Conference. I'm going to be gone all week. I'm going to get back from that. And two weeks later, I'm going to get on another airplane and be gone for two weeks in Russia and Israel. And already, Regina and I have been talking, I'm going to miss you. It's pathetic. It really is. But anyway... <laughs> And in that moment, when I'm, when I'm on the far side of the world, in Siberia particularly, 13 time zones away, and it's freezing cold, literally, I know that there's one day I'm going to pick up the phone, and I'm going to talk to Regina, and I'm going to say something like, am I ever going to see you? Am I ever going to see you again? That's the psalmist, verse 6. He has just told himself, hope in God. Then verse 6, my soul is in despair. I remember you from the land of Jordan, from the peaks of Hermon, from Mount Bazar. I remember when I was with you at the Jordan River. I remember when I was with you on the top of the mountain of, of Mount Hermon and, and the smaller mountain, Mount Bazar. And I remember those things and they're so far away. I'll never get back. In fact, it's, it's not just the despondency of being away from the power of God and the fellowship of God, but notice verse 7, his, his trials are overwhelming to him. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls, all of your breakers and all of your waves have rolled over me. Have you noticed the source of his trouble? Your waterfalls, God, your breakers, God, your waves have rolled over me and they have destroyed me. At the beginning of... The psalm, he goes in verse 1, talking about the the beauty of, of the water brooks and the refreshment of water. This is no refreshing water that's hitting him now. He's drowning. In fact, at the beginning it says, deep calls to deep. What's that? I think he's thinking about the Jordan River. And he's thinking about the deep portions of the Jordan River. And one deep portion of the Jordan River is calling to another deep portion of the Jordan River saying, drown him. Bury him. He's just overwhelmed. Everything in my life is designed to destroy me. And he is undone. 
Life is too much. It gets worse. Verse 8, has God not heard? He tries to remind himself at the beginning of verse 8. Someone, someone has suggested that, that verse 8 is kind of a refrain of verse 5, that, that here's another interlude of praise. I don't think so. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. He's trying to muster himself up. God, God, God's going to command his mercy and his grace, and his song will be with me in the night. I'll sing a song to God in the middle of the night when I wake up at 2 or 3 in the morning and I'm all knotted up, and that song will be, the end of verse 8, a prayer to the God of my life. And what is he going to pray? Verse 9, I will say to God, my rock. I will say to God, God, you are my rock. You're, you're the one on whom I stand. You're, you're my permanence. You're my stability. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? <laughs> alone. Won't you hear my prayer? Won't you answer me? Verses 8 and 9 are, are no, no movement towards a dependence on God. They're just more lament. I'm all alone and God hasn't heard. God can't answer. God won't answer. I'm all alone. Why do I go mourning? The word mourning is a, is a word for darkness. It, it denotes the, the blackness of the clothing that he would put on if he's in grief. I, I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy. Not only have you not heard, but the enemy has heard and they're they're continuing to afflict me. It's just more I'm alone talk. Not only that, verse 10, I'm being persecuted. Not only am I being mocked, but now I'm being persecuted. Verse 10, as a shattering of my bones, my adversaries will revile me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Again, I think this is, this is reason why he's in a foreign land. They're, they're, they're shattering his bones. The, the, the word is... I hate to think about this too much because of the queasiness of my stomach, but it's a grinding of the bones, smashing of his body. This, this is literal persecution. He is not only abandoned by God, but he is being crushed by his oppressors. So where will he go? Hear the final provision of hope, verse 11. The concluding and final words of the psalm are a rebuke to the psalmist's inclination of heart to despair. He speaks to his soul again and he reminds his soul that the last word belongs to God and his care and his provision. His soul will not have the final word, but God will. And the word is be patient as God works. Hope in God. Wait for him. Remember the the right timing of God's power to work. Delay from God is not forgetfulness from God. Quiet from God is not absence of God. God will bring His people home. Trust Him. His timing is right. Be patient as God works. Then notice this as well. God is... My God. Verse 11 is virtually identical to verse 5, except for the last portion of the last phrase in verse 11, the help of my countenance and my God. Notice verse 1. He talks to God and he addresses him as God. Verse Two, 
He says He is not just God, but He is the living God. He is the source of life. He is, he is the one to whom we go for life. Verse 3, He's not only the living God, but He is a God that is worth worshiping. Verse 8, He is not just God, but He is a covenant-keeping God. He is the Lord. He is Yahweh. He is, he is the God that has made the covenant with the people of Israel. Verse 9, He is not just God, but He is a rock. He is stability. Now, verse 11, He is not just God, He is my God. I belong to Him, and He belongs to me. And friend, if you are in Jesus Christ, that is also your position. The Father cannot treat you with evil. You are protected by the hand of God. He can no more lose you than He can lose His Son, Jesus Christ. You remember... remember the scene after the resurrection, Jesus and Mary Magdalene in the garden, and she falls at his feet, clinging to him. And he says, stop worrying, for I go to my God and your God. Those are astounding words, friend. It's not just, it's not just that God belongs to Jesus Christ, another member of the Trinity, but he belongs to us. And we belong to him. And if we belong to Him, He will keep us. If He is your God, no matter what your circumstances are, you are safe. As Oswald Chambers has said, it is not our trust that keeps us, but the God in whom we trust who keeps us. One last reminder. Speak to yourself. In our troubles, you and I must not only learn to endure the troubles, we must learn to speak to ourselves in the middle of our troubles and we must speak the truth of God to ourselves. If God is who He is, why are you in despair? If God is who He is, why are you disturbed within you? My friend, do not listen to the inclination of your flesh. The flesh will take you away from God but the Spirit of God will take you to God. Address your flesh and order your heart and control your mind and stimulate yourself to a greater trust and confidence in Him despite your circumstances. Remember what we said earlier about John Bunyan? Listen to the hope that he found. One day he writes, As I was passing into the field, this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There I say was my righteousness, so that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, He lacks my righteousness, for I was just before Him. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor my bad frame that made my righteousness worse, for my righteousness was Jesus Christ Himself, the same yesterday and today and forever. Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. I was loosed from my afflictions and irons. My temptations also fled away so that from that time those dreadful scriptures of God about the unforgivable sin left off to trouble me. Now went I also home rejoicing for the grace and the love of God. On that day and in that moment, Bunyan realized that the answer was outside of him in the person 
of Jesus Christ. God was not opposed to him and God had not abandoned him. His thinking was very similar to what our psalmist has seen. It's a, it's a reminder to us about the truth of the nature of God and the character of God. When we remember God as he is, when we meditate on God and his goodness and his provision, when we correct our wayward hearts, the clouds of discouragement will begin to lift. Oh, friend, are you despairing? Then say to your heart, hope in God. Father, we need this word for we are prone to hopelessness. We are prone to despair. We are prone to despondency. Oh, thank you that you remind us of the reality of who you are and reminding us of your character and nature. You give us the very hope that we need. Might we find confidence in that this week, we pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.